0: Choose life. Choose a job. Choose a career. Choose a family. Choose a fucking big television. Choose washing machines, cars, compact displays and electrical tin openers. Choose good health, low cholesterol and dental insurance. Choose fixed interest mortgage repayments. Choose your friends. Choose a starter home. Choose leisure wear and matching luggage. Choose rotting away at the end of it all, pissing your last in a miserable home, nothing more than an embarrassment to the selfish, fucked up brats that you've spawned to replace yourselves. Choose your future. Choose life.
1: Welcome to Now Playing's Train Spotting Retrospective Series.
0: Take the best orgasm you ever had, multiply it by a thousand, and you're still nowhere near it.
1: Hosted by Stuart. He knows a lot about Sean Connery. Jacob. The loving
0: man who
1: had a great lust for life. And Arnie.
0: Three of the most useless and unreliable fuck ups in town.
1: These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers, harsh language, and are seriously lacking in moral fiber.
0: What they forget is the pleasure of it. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it.
1: Listener discretion is advised. Here comes again.
0: Thank you. I'll proceed directly to the intravenous injection of hard drugs, please.
2: Today we're discussing T2, no not Terminator 2, T2 Spotting, starring Ewan McGregor, Ewan Bremmer, Johnny Lee Miller, Robert Carlyle, directed by Danny Boyle. This is Arnie, the now playing co-host who chooses podcasting. This is Stuart.
3: And this is the host that's like one of those cunts in the Bible that live forever, Jacob.
4: T2. Actually, they did want you to make that connection. Would it have helped if they had gone with their original title, which was
2: The Least Unfamiliar? I actually think I'd be more interested if it was called Porno, which is the name of the second book. The Least Familiar does not sound like a commercial success, does not sound like a movie... I'd be looking into does not sound like a sequel to Train Spotting. Yeah,
3: you got to have that Train Spotting title in there somewhere.
2: Yeah, I, and it had been a
4: while. It should be said, were people chomping at the bit? This is one of those times when the sequel is coming so late after the original success that you have to wonder, was it expected? Were you guys excited? Did you even know about it when it came out in the UK this January and this March here in America? I didn't see it until it hit Blu-ray last week.
3: Yeah, I saw it last week to prepare for this show. I remember seeing a poster up at the movie theater for it. I'm like, oh, a second train spotting. I'll catch that on video sometime. I like that first one a lot. It's I wasn't dying for a follow-up though for it where I needed to see it in theaters.
2: Yeah, I knew it was coming out. I'd seen stuff, you know, we research movies a lot. I'd seen quite a bit about it. I'd read a couple interviews with Danny Boyle at the time. My memories of train spotting were faint and not exceedingly positive, so I was like, okay, Ewan McGregor, he still works. I didn't have any burning desire to see it. I, too, didn't see it until just a day or two before we're recording this, and I was mostly just put off by the fact that they called it T2. I'm like, what are you trying to do? They're trying to rib James Cameron. It it was said
4: Danny Boyle knows that most people are going to be confused, knows that everyone understands that Terminator 2 is T2, but is not trademarked. And so he was just like, you know, Sick Boy and Rent Boy are movie fans, and, you know, they would think that the best sequel of all time was Terminator 2. The idea here is we're going to top it, we're going to
2: make the best sequel of all time.
3: Yeah, it's just going really meta for a joke that's not that great.
2: My thing with Terminator 2 is when you were telling me the first movie was a period piece set in the eighties. Is that true now? I mean, I know the book was a period piece set in the eighties. Was that movie? Because this movie, I guarantee you, does not take place in 2007. They didn't have no Snapchat with dog filters on it in 2007. Nope.
3: I was calling bullshit too. Mm-hmm.
2: Those <laughs> iPhones they use, 2007 is the year the iPhone one was released. You had no apps, it was curved. There is definitely like a 2015, 2016 iPhone in this film. <laughs>
4: Yeah, I don't know when this is taking place. It's worth walking through the time frame just to kind of see how we got here. Because, yes, you mentioned it was a sequel book written by the original author Irving Welsh. Reviewed it over at Books and Nachos. It came out ten years after the first book 2003, and picks up with the characters seven years later. The reason why we don't have porno, I think, is because it's just not very good. And Danny Boyle did try to get the original screenwriter, John Hodge, to get a version to work, and they they had it and just said, we didn't like it. They didn't want to make that movie. And so I think it took them a while to come up with an idea that takes about 40% of porno, but also... I would say sixty percent of their own concepts. Or maybe just remakes of the original movie.
2: I think another reason we didn't get it from the stuff I read though is The Beach. Now, The Beach is a movie <laughs> I watched for the train spotting reviews. Not for Transformers, not because you love Michael Bay? The you're thinking The Island with Ewan McGregor. Oh, that's right. This <laughs> is the Beach with Leonardo DiCaprio, and my entire knowledge of The Beach was, if you recall, Leo was up for discussion to play Anakin Skywalker in Episode 2 in 99. When I went to see The Phantom Menace at its midnight release in 99 was the first time I saw a trailer for The Beach, and the only time in my life I've heard an audience just unanimously boo a trailer because they were booing Leonardo, Titanic, DiCaprio, possibly the Anakin Skywalker in the next Star Wars movie before they even saw Misa Jar Jar. They decided Leo was a step too far. But it wasn't supposed to be Leo. It was supposed to be Ewan. Who would end up in the island. That's where I got confused. Yes. And from what I read, and I read both of their accounts, Danny Boyle did handle it in a shitty manner. He was telling Ewan, you're my star. You've been in... All of his films. Yeah. I was thinking... A life less ordinary, train spotting. You're the guy who's gonna star in the beach. And then something happened where Danny Boyle decided he needed a bigger star for the studio budget, went with Leo, but never really told Ewan. And Ewan found out through other channels. And it sounds like Ewan really did get shit upon. Like if Danny had gone to him and explained it, maybe it would have been one thing. But those two didn't speak for like 13 years. Yeah, I do think a big reason was you couldn't
4: make Train Spotting 2 without the original Rent Boy. I don't believe it would work without McGregor. And I don't think Danny Boyle would let another filmmaker make it either. So much of the style, so much of what people loved about the movie was that director working with that emerging star. You gotta get those back. Almost anybody else is replaceable. Take them, put it anywhere else. Part of porno was set in Amsterdam. You could have Rent Boy in a Different city. It could be something that wasn't Scottish, but no, you absolutely couldn't do it without him. And so it took a while to iron out those differences. I think they started talking back. There was some discussion even as of 2009, but I don't think it was really serious until about 2014.
2: And I look at this and I think about when we reviewed the before trilogy of movies. I really like what Linklater gets. Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke together every 10 years to see where those characters are. So when I look at this, was I Burning, was anybody burning for train spotting to return to screens? No, but I put this in with the utmost of curiosity wondering Where are these characters 20 years later? You've got 20 years on the actors. You've got 20 years on the characters, or I'm going to say 30 years on the characters, although they say 20 in the movie. They say everything happened 20 years ago. But again, it's taking place in 2017, goddammit. So I'm curious what these people will be up to and to revisit that. I, I just love that as an experiment when it's coming back so many years later and it's not something like Chevy Chase doing a cameo in The New Vacation.
4: And I would say Train Spotting launched a lot of careers. Almost everyone got work out of it. And so it's fun to see them in some ways coming back to the small movie that made them who they are. Everyone is having to reevaluate their career in a certain way. And so, yeah, with McGregor coming back to the character and trying to, you know, work out his hostilities towards his old friends he ripped off, it does feel like him yeah, coming back to work with Boyle and ironing out those differences, and I would presume he would be the star, right? Like, it would have to be with the way that they ended that last movie, you'd have to believe it'd be about him making peace with his mates. You could put it somewhere else, but I think in order for it to be Train Spotting, it has to be a return to Scotland.
2: I'd agree with that. As far as making peace... I don't know that that had to be it. We could have just come to them 20 years later. Bygones could have been bygones. Whoa, no, come on. I said
3: in the last show that, yeah, I felt like it was going to be Mark, and he's gone on with his life, and somehow
4: he's going to get pulled back in and have to confront what he did. 16,000 pounds, I'm sorry. That would still hurt 20 years later.
2: But it was only four thousand per person. (laughs) You're being very logical. Can I steal four thousand bucks from you? Arnie, (laughs) you gonna be okay with that? You know, twenty years from now I might not be so pissed.
4: Or you might be in prison. I mean, it is, you're right. It's interesting to see where these characters are going to land, how they're going to come together. I think the American version we never got was everyone always wanted the breakfast club to reunite. And this is sort of like the European equivalent of that. All those crazy kids in the past. Are they still going to be hooked on heroin? Are they going to have sold out to the corporations that they mocked in their youth? These are interesting questions, and
2: one that's, I suppose, answered by the plot summary. Longest segue ever. (laughs) (laughs) It's been 20, or I'm going to say 30 years since the events of the first train spotting. And after escaping with the stolen 12,000 pounds, I mean, he stole 16,000, but left four with Spud. But after that theft, no one has seen or heard from Mark Renton, again, played by Ewan McGregor. And in the time since, Renton has moved to Amsterdam, got married, gotten a degree in accounting, and now works in retail software. But a newly discovered heart problem, coupled with a divorce and a corporate reorg that may make him lose his job, Renton finds himself lost, homeless, and finally returning home to Edinburgh. One by one, he connects with his friends. First he encounters Spud, real name Daniel Murphy, again played by Ewan Bremmer. Spud is still a heroin addict. He got off the junk about five years prior, and even got married and had a kid. But one by one, he lost those things and got back on heroin. He is in fact attempting suicide when Renton finds him and saves his life, and Mark gives him the advice he needs to kick heroin again, possibly for good? At Spud's urging, Mark also goes to see Sick Boy, Simon Williamson, again played by Johnny Lee Miller. Sick Boy is holding a grudge for the stolen money and starts by beating up Renton. Then he plans a deception to get Renton into a business partnership where Sick Boy will steal all the money. But the two actually rekindle their friendship and do plan a business venture, a massage parlor slash brothel. See, Sick Boy is still a criminal. He switched from heroin to cocaine, but he pimps out his girlfriend Veronica and videos her sessions, then blackmails the Johns she sodomizes. During the planning of the business, Renton starts to sleep with Veronica behind Sick Boy's back, though Renton doesn't quite see it as cheating as that relationship is fairly one-sided and Veronica doesn't sleep with Sick Boy. But things go sour when the group is given a £100,000 business loan, and each partner plans to steal it from the other. Instead, with a little help from Spud, Veronica steals the full 100000 and goes back to her home in Romania. And while all this is happening, there's also Francis Franco Begbie, again played by Robert Carlyle. Franco went to prison shortly after Renton fled Edinburgh. After parole is denied, Franco breaks out of prison and lives in hiding, robbing houses for cash. But he has a murderous hatred for Renton for ripping him off 20 years earlier. A chance encounter at a club makes Franco realize not only is Renton back, but Sick Boy knew and has been hiding the fact. Begbie lures both Sick Boy and Renton to the pub where he plans to kill them, but at the last minute, Spud comes in and knocks Begbie cold. The three lock Franco in a car trunk and return him to prison. Renton and Sick Boy remain friends, and it seems Spud has a talent for writing. He's written the youthful adventures of he and his friends into a book, which, could the title be Train Spotting? We're left wondering that as Renton plays Lust for Life once again and credits roll. Now, the expression Danny Boyle uses
4: time and again on the commentary track to this movie is muscle memory. I'm going to call it something different. Going back to the well, this movie is littered with callbacks, and that's intentional. He wanted this film to be a dialogue commenting on all of the major iconic events, starting here with the beginning The first movie opened with Ewan McGregor running down the street, showing off the briskness of youth. Now he's showing off middle-aged muscle tone and
2: having a heart attack on a treadmill. I didn't even recognize him. I had to pause the movie and look up online who had the heart attack at the beginning because he's got this long hair like this 80s glam rocker hair you did not watch Fargo season three where he had similar hairdo <laughs> I did not watch Fargo season one two or three and so <laughs> I had no clue it was him and when we see him again next time he's got a buzz cut similar to what he had in the first film and so while I thought that was Ewan McGregor that don't really freeze on him too much And when it never gets referenced for like a half an hour, I'm like, who the hell was that mulleted man?
3: Yeah, Stuart, you say muscle memory. I'm going to say maybe heavy handed. That's the body part I'm going to pick. Because yes, this is full of debates about nostalgia and can you go home again? Can you regain that lust for life? I I guess I'll put it that way. And yeah, to have this opening, though, I did like this opening to to compare with that original train spotting film where you have Mark running from the police and And you got that great soundtrack here. You you don't have lust for life, and you got him on a treadmill and, I guess, having a heart attack.
4: Yeah, and, you know, lots of icons. I remember Mark several times in the original movie keeps going to the mirror, and here it's a mirrored gym, and there's just... Almost every scene is a callback to imagery, iconography, dialogue we've had before. The question should be asked up top, could anyone that hasn't seen the first movie enjoy this?
2: That begs the question, could anyone enjoy this, which I'm saving for the final recommend, but... I think that this movie does stand alone in many ways. You can come into this and not know these things are callbacks and still follow a really depressing tale about four ex-friends in Midlife Crisis.
3: Yeah, I feel like they give enough flashbacks. I mean, we even get shots to them in their youth as, as little children that we never saw before in the previous film. So I, I think they fill in that gap. Will you care? My feeling about this film is you're going to care about this film if you cared about the first one.
4: Yeah, I, I'm going to second it. I really feel... the. The only investment that's going to happen are fans of the original people could come back and follow it in fact they might even think it's cool because they all the things that were cool about the first movie are done again but what's cool in young age doesn't always look so good on middle age and i definitely feel like yeah this is a movie for the middle-aged fans that loved train spotting in their youth it's for
2: us And I think that a lot of this movie is speaking directly to us. The first one was about rebellion. You know, it was about the 90s. And while it didn't have a grunge aesthetic, I think some of that grunge, anti-establishment fervor ran through it. You know, the whole choose life was being done sardonically. Making fun of that 80s anti-drug slogan, but the things you're supposed to choose was with a bitter edge, again, as I mentioned in the last podcast, kind of like the narrator speaking of Ikea and Fight Club. Here, now you've got a bunch of people who are middle-aged. They are disenfranchised, but yet, especially in the case of Renton, part of the establishment he was rebelling against. And so now, instead of being in our 20s, because we're all about the same age as these characters, instead of being in the 20s ourselves and being like, yeah, heroin may not be exactly what I want to do, but I'm with you about not being part of corporate conformity. And now it's all about giving up on your dreams and accepting what you can have and stopping to uh, shooting the stars. It's like, damn, this is a depressing movie because the only people who could relate are those who have gone through this or are going through this.
3: I do feel like Danny Boyle's trying to hedge his bets here. Like, hey guys, maybe this isn't train spotting, but you really only love train spotting because of nostalgia because you were young when you saw it. Well, I just saw it last week and it still holds up. Like, I do feel like some of that's trying to say, hey, we can still do a great movie. We can still do a fun movie. And it doesn't have to be about youths and their heroine. And I don't know if that's 100% true. You know, look, I think Danny Boyle started off strong and I liked his opening ceremonies for the London Olympics, but a lot of his later films, I do don't think he's as great and i don't think it's because i have nostalgia for his earlier stuff
4: well yeah i hear what you're saying here and maybe they're going back to this i think they're going back to it partly because they love these characters but maybe he's also going back to it because it's an obvious way to get people to to show up or at least somebody to show up more than some of these films he's put out did, did anybody see steve jobs i did and i wish i hadn't nope <laughs>
2: I actually really want to. I keep planning a piece for the Gazette where I review all three Steve Jobs biopics. I've seen the one with Ashton Kutcher. I saw the one with Noah Weil many, many times I've seen that one. So it's the last one for me to see. I've seen a lot of Boyle's recent stuff. Like I caught up with some stuff I'd been meaning to watch anyway, prepping for this, like 127 Hours, Slumdog Millionaire, but... I don't love either of those films. I thought they were solid enough. But the stuff I love of his was 28 Days Later and Before, not counting The Beach. The Beach sucked.
4: Anyway, Danny Boyle maybe should have his own retrospective and we could get into these nuances more thoroughly. But I think we're all in agreement here. His best days, much like these characters, may be in the past. And so to go back and have a hard reassessment... Is interesting I, Again, I think you're right to do a good comparative with Richard Linklater, Before Sunrise, Before Sunset. I think Before Sunset's a better movie. I'm hoping that them having a mature perspective is going to make the first movie even better. And so I'm really excited to see, Jacob, I think you s- predicted this, that Renton sold out, that he, of course, took that money and went to Amsterdam, but eventually got a boring corporate job, got married. You know, he says he has kids. It ends up being a lie, but he ended up having a much more traditional life than he ever imagined for himself. And is that better than being off heroin?
3: That might be the more interesting movie is how he went clean in Amsterdam.
2: Not exactly the place I think of to go to get clean. <laughs> it's the place I think of to go to get dirty. And maybe
3: they're avid joggers because that's how he goes clean. He, he believes the only way to kick one addiction is to get addicted to something else.
4: Yeah. And so why does he come back? I mean, it's never stated outright. I think it's, you know, obviously, when you're having a midlife crisis, you may return to the things in your youth that worked for you, but would you really risk going back and potentially even being killed? It's not for his mom's funeral.
3: I thought it was because he goes home and they have that shadow of his mother at the table. It felt like his mom had just died and that's why he was returning, but we never get a funeral scene, so I guess that's not it. It's just his life's gone to shit, and so he's come back
2: home? I think so, and 20 years have passed. You gotta think that they're not gonna kill me over... I mean, this guy's working a corporate job, so you've got to assume he's making seventy, eighty thousand 80,000 pounds a year. He's making it enough to bring back money to repay Sick Boy. But not enough to repay all of them, nor to include interest. So, But he's also going through a divorce, and... From what I understand, going through divorces is not ever cheap, but at this point, I'm imagining 16000 seems like a smaller sum to him, and if he's gotten past it, maybe everybody else has too, and he has nowhere else to go, but... I know I've been subject to this kind of nostalgia. You know, I've gone and I've visited my college campus again and that sort of thing myself. I even went to one of the high schools I went to in Florida, which was a hell of a trip to go for nostalgia. But I went down there so I can understand the desire to go home again.
4: And, you know, I think this is unique. I think our generation has these longings. I mentioned that breakfast club. But any younger generation, they stay connected, right? Social media doesn't allow people to become strangers. You're always going to know your high school chums and what they're doing. And so this is unique. This is the last generation to be able to have a reunion.
2: I don't know that that's entirely true because you pick your social networks and they change and evolve over time. And I have seen lately, especially among younger people, turning off. Like, Our generation is who uses Facebook. Younger people are not on Facebook. They're not using that medium. They're on Snapchat, Instagram.
3: I I can't keep up with all the social media platforms.
2: Yeah, don't tell me they're in the park playing, flying a kite.
3: (laughs) They're in the park playing Poke. Oh, wait, that was a couple years ago. They're playing Pokemon.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Some of them still play Pokemon Go, but I don't know that reunions are going to be a completely outmoded concept because there's always going to be the people you didn't connect with, but who you hung with and things.
4: And certainly Spud is not going to ever get on social media. I mean, I do think (laughs) the friendship that meant the most, obviously the guy that Renton made sure he didn't screw and just sweet. This guy is harmless. You know, maybe, you know, you could hate him for living off the dole of the system, but has not a mean bone in his body. You got to feel for Spud even more 20 years later.
3: I am crushed by his story. I mean, he gets that really funny scene at the job interview in the first train spotting here. You know, he loses his job because... Spending years as a junkie you have no need to keep track of daylight saving so he misses work by an hour then it just all domino effect from there misses getting on the dole by an hour you just feel so bad for him because yeah he is such a loser and a schizo
2: I think this movie is actually funnier than the last one there were several laugh out loud moments for me in this I didn't have that with the first train spotting and this I didn't laugh out loud but it is funny and I probably would have lost the job, too, because I had no idea countries other than the U.S. had this stupid fucking daylight savings time monstrosity. Move to Arizona. They don't have it. Yeah. <laughs> it Might be perfect for you.
4: A little hot down there. But anyway, the point <laughs> is that when they're reunited... Boyle is going to try some of his tricks. You know, I think some of the strongest imagery that take away from that first movie or like when Brinton has his overdose and he falls into a grave that's carpeted and has that POV. Here, Spud's going to kill himself and they try to dramatize it. I just think it's a lot less exciting. The visuals aren't as flashy. You know, him falling off the top of the housing complex in a chair just doesn't have the same verve. And maybe it's not supposed to. I was actually confused at first. I'm like, because we see Spud realize Mark is coming
3: through the door to save him. I'm like, did he run to a window and like jump out the window <laughs> to like make sure he could commit suicide? But I agree with you, Stuart. Yeah, the visuals here, I don't know. I, don't, I just don't think Boyle has the same style. There, there's nothing that sticks out like swimming through the toilet or the baby crawling on the ceiling. There, there, I mean, it's gross when Spud like pukes in that exit bag that he has over his head, but it, it's nowhere near like when Mark has OD'd and you see that POV from inside the grave with like the rug coming up.
2: Yeah, I agree. This movie, the trick it uses time and again is freeze framing and like jump cutting.
3: That was really annoying, the freeze framing.
2: Yeah. Honestly, the very first time it happened, I wondered if my Blu ray had a scratch. I'm like, God damn it, it's a brand new disc. Did I put a fingerprint on it or something? And then I noticed it repeated. And that's the biggest visual cue it has. I got the chair thing. I liked it as showing us the time. Like, I assumed that it was in his head, that when he hit the ground is when he'd be dead. So it let us know exactly how long Renton had to get to him. But nothing here is like either of those things mentioned. The toilet scene, the carpet scene, the baby. The baby scene was awful. That thing was so mechanical.
3: It sticks in your mind, though. It's the one of the things I always remember from that film.
2: Yeah. And so this
4: reunion is probably going to be the easiest for Renton, you know, he cannot reunite with the friend that died of AIDS. And, yeah, Simon, really his old roommate, and I think he would call him his best friend. Uh, this is going to be a tough one
2: to patch up and ends up being a big bar brawl. That was the question I had when you said the person he'd go back to is Spud. Yeah, he left the 4000 for Spud. I would think those two were best buds. It seemed like... Sick Boy and Begbie were a partnership, and Spud and Renton were a partnership. But this movie's going to have everybody telling us, including Renton himself that it was sick boy and renton who were the best buds i never got that out of the last film well they did shoot dogs together yeah but everybody did something together i never got anything that they had some kind of special bond
4: okay
3: yeah he, ne- he didn't trust sick boy at the end with the money he knew sick boy would rip him off and that's why he rips him off first but still helps out spud one thing i did notice though i mean we're still calling these characters by their names in the last film i do feel like one of the signs that this is about being middle-aged is they don't don't really go by Sick Boy and Spud and Begbie. They all go by their Christian names. You know, Danny and Simon and Frank or Franco. Like, they they really do move away from those youthful handles that they went
2: by. Yeah, he'll always be Spud and Sick Boy to me.
4: Yeah, it, it makes it easier to talk about. Spud is still Spud, unfortunately. And maybe by the end of this, you can call him by his proper name. But yeah, Sick Boy. I wondered, again, last movie, if you didn't read the book... Would you think that he was playfully bad or really loathsome? If you read the book, the character in that is really much more difficult to like.
3: I find in that first film, he makes that transition from being playfully bad, like when he's talking about James Bond. By the end of that film, I don't really like him. And here, I really don't like him. He just is a, a despicable character to me.
4: Yeah, I mean, and also I was wondering if it was clear if he was starting to pimp women. The whole idea that he'd move into a brothel and kind of legitimize. He has inherited a bar called the Sunshine Porch, and he wants to take government money and turned it into a quote-unquote massage parlor, A sauna. <laughs> a sauna, yeah. We all know that that's on the up and up. But yeah, that essentially he's going to legitimize what he was doing at the end of that last movie. I don't know if that's totally clear he's
3: doing it for his girlfriend veronica though because she gets beat up by one of the johns because i don't know she says he was doing coke it looked like he was just really into whatever food he was eating so he (laughs) gets there late when that john finds out there's a camera filming him and starts beating her and so she wants out because she came from a sauna it seems like he gets that idea to placate her
2: strangest niche prostitute ever we never actually see her sleeping with any of her clients but she's involved in what I have found out is referred to as pegging, where she has this giant dildo that she rams up men's asses. I mean, it's funny. It's certainly not what I expect. And then... I mean, we got that joke in Deadpool. I mean... Yeah, that's true. That, that, I think that
3: introduced it to the world en mass.
2: Yeah, Women's Day, you're right. And then he's not just making money as a pimp, But he's then videotaping this and we we're introduced to him blackmailing a school headmaster. I love the line that I'm not going to squeeze you too hard. I just want 10% of your income for the rest of your life.
4: Yeah, loathsome, but canny. He, this is how he plans to get his dream financed. And he's not expecting for Renton to come back into his life and work together. In fact, I'm not exactly sure why they iron it out. He. It starts with a bar fight. Mark just basically wants to pay him what he's owed and walks away bloody. And there's a whole lot of back and forth about, am I going to get back on the airplane and go back to Amsterdam?
2: He gets to the airport. He's ready to go. But he has no place to go to. When he's going to come back, he's finally going to tell the truth, because when he first sees Sick Boy is when he lies about having kids, and he's making his life sound so good. He works in the software sales, all this. Then... After the brawl, when he's faced with going back, he doesn't have a place to live. It's his wife's apartment. He doesn't think he's going to have a job much longer because of a corporate merger and he doesn't have the experience. And so he's sitting there in the airport, but what's he going back to? He might as well... Go back and try to make some kind of amends. The movie's telling me these two are best friends. And I have to believe that's why he went and saw him in the first place. That's why he took the 4,000. He's lost his wife. He has no emotional connections. He saw his father. But that's not going to be the same as seeing your bros. And so he went to see Sick Boy to rekindle that friendship.
3: I get that he's going home because his life's going down. So why not visit the old friends, pay back sick boy, see if there's any hard feelings there. I feel like he stays because of Veronica after he gets beat up by sick boy and he's laying on that pool table. There's a little quick little flash where he like looks up and Veronica's like, I don't know, massaging his head or something. And then he closes his eyes, looks up again and she's gone. I feel like. That's why he stays, and he's going to be pursuing her the rest of the film.
4: Yeah, and I think you're right about that. This is a change from porno. In porno, what brings these two together is that they're going to get into the pornographic film business. And it's a Scottish woman, but yeah, she comes between these two men. It's a line of dialogue that comes later in this movie, but I don't know if you guys caught it or not. She really isn't his girlfriend. She has sex with him when he visits the sauna of a rival, of a mobster. But I'm not sure that she's ever slept with him and not
2: been paid for the service. She said that it happened once. He did say that as well, or that they have had sex without it being commerce, Later, she's talking to Renton and says, yes, they did it once. She calls herself his girlfriend, but there's no sex there. It's really a one-sided relationship. It's about as pathetic as you can get, falling in love with your hooker. And she's treating it like a business transaction. He's my boyfriend slash he's my boss. He's the one who's making me money. But she has no affection for him the way he does for her. And yeah, he's trying to open this entire massage parlor because after that one john she's like i'm gonna go back to the massage parlors but he doesn't want that because he doesn't want her fucking other people he wants her to only fuck him she's not fucking him either so she i guess he wants her to be completely celibate if he she's not sleeping with him but his way of guaranteeing that control over her is to remain her boss and by giving her the massage parlor she wants and making her the madam versus I would assume she would just be another massage babe at some other parlor. I
4: gotta say, if you're opening up a sex club slash massage parlor, and one of the business owners is in Amsterdam, isn't that where you said it? I mean, maybe... They think they have a shot here, but knowing that, yeah, she worked at a place where there's a heavy, and the guy, Mr. Doyle, the man they have running it, is actually a guy in Scotland that runs these kinds of places. They actually went to a real authentic brothel owner to play this part. (laughs) Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, later. I, I, you know, maybe the movie should be about that. Then that should be the villain. I think it becomes complicated because they got to bring back Begbie.
3: Well, it's so out of the blue when Mister Doyle shows up, and I guess we'll talk about it later. But yeah, that, that this whole sauna storyline is going to come to an end quite abruptly. It almost doesn't feel like it was planned out.
2: And. To say that they got an actual brothel owner, I'm now wondering exactly how much hands-on research that they all did
4: for this film. They said they didn't do heroin to study the first film, so no presumption. They're actors,
3: right? Yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis is an actor, too. He he would do the heroin.
2: Yeah, and Ewan McGregor said he thought about it. He got real close to doing the heroin, but I don't think you've said it in Amsterdam because there's way too much established competition there. Here, when it's an illegal proposition you then have the ability to not have to go up against all the places that are already, what, written about in Fromers? Do they actually... Now I'm wondering, does Fromers review brothels? I don't know. Maybe they talked
3: about it on some... Not reviewing brothels, but (laughs) maybe they talked about it on the extras. It seems like that first film, it has a strong... Identity with, you know, that Scottish heritage. You get that whole, the Scottish are shite. You've been subjugated by Wankas. Is that a big deal with this one that it's, it's remains about Scotland? We'll get some scene about a war between Protestants <laughs> and Catholics, but I don't know. Maybe that's why they don't go to Amsterdam because Boyle feels like, not Doyle, Boyle, the director, feels like train spotting is as much about Scotland as it is about heroin.
4: Yeah. I mean, I definitely feel like this original movie is foundational it helped create a scottish film scene where there really wasn't a strong identity for such a thing beforehand just as the book did the same thing for a new generation of readers so yeah i I think it would have been heresy to put it into a different city amsterdam might have been interesting but it wouldn't have been what boyle would want to do if this is indeed about scottish lads patching up old wounds and working together
2: Speaking of it being Scottish, when I put in the Blu-ray, I forgot to turn on my subtitles again, even though I'd watched (laughs) the first one with subtitles, a little bit of time passed between them, and I was doing perfectly fine with the language until Begbie showed up. You know, I think that all the others did a pretty good job of downplaying their accents. I was able to understand, especially Ewan McGregor and Johnny Lee Miller, both of whom have perfected their American accents. And I was able to even go with Spud. But the moment Begbie showed up, I'm like, ah, fuck, I need to read this again.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that you're right. When they made the first movie, they're like, we just want... England the UK to see this film screw America we don't even care if they ever see it they'll never understand us they wanted to make a movie uh, for them and now yeah, they gotta know with the way movies are sold and certainly with the popularity and name recognition of train spotting that yeah to recoup this money they need to have it play in all different kinds of markets and so you're right I definitely feel like it's it's easier to understand what's going on and i actually didn't even have much trouble with begbie but that's mostly because he feels like a silent movie villain you know like you, you don't have to understand the words to know that he's angry and that's that's basically he's got one idea here and that is
2: to kill he is not the same actor he was 20 years ago though the other 3 pretty much still look the part johnny lee miller has filled out and slimmed down but Begbie in this movie, when he puts on that hat and those glasses, all I could think was Andy Cap. And I haven't thought about Andy <laughs> Cap in 20 years. Well,
3: we'll find out, Begbie and. Mark were in the same elementary class together because Begbie was held back a year? I'm, no way these two are a year apart. Like, I didn't believe they were that close in age in the last film, and they look even further apart in age in this one.
4: Yeah, prison does things to you, right? <laughs> he wasn't really in prison though. This actor is way older. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I do think, I mean, some of this look is intentional by design. I mean, he was in America. Both he and Johnny Lee Miller were working on a TV series. He was the Mad Hatter on Once Upon a Time. I, he had one scene with long hair later where he's going to play his father that was the hair he had for american television but all of this other is is an image that he created for this character he loved this character he wanted to come back and he really seized to the idea of of, yeah playing it like kind of like bronson if you know that movie with tom hardy a famous english prisoner who was who just couldn't behave
3: netflix is always recommending it to me i haven't watched it yet
4: it's pretty good, mostly for Tom Hardy. And again, it's, it's a lot. If you like what Begbie's doing here in prison, it's a lot of that. It's basically this man has not tempered his anger in all these years. He was pretty much the friend that everyone didn't want around in the first movie. They had beers with him because they didn't know how to get away from him. And now he's going to escape from prison. He does not know that Mark Renton is back. This is something that they created, a conflict they created for the movie. In the book, it was just that he was out of prison and home again and gets wind of this porno. Here, I think it might play stronger if he had a reason to escape prison at this time.
3: He just doesn't want to die in prison. He's been in there 20 years or 30, according to Arnie, which I tend to believe. But yeah, he doesn't get parole, and I guess it's going to be another five years, and he just can't take it anymore.
2: Yeah, and he went to jail... Almost immediately after the last movie. Because they keep saying 20 years, 20 years, 20 years. And so if we just assume 20 years is the time span, something he did right after Renton fled got him put away.
4: No, he was a wanted criminal at that time. He had robbed a jewelry store. Oh,
2: that's right. That's right. But
4: these things, he again, that would have given him a year or two. But the fact that he's just a bad prisoner that can't control his temper and there's just always Acting out—that I think that's what's kept him permanently incarcerated—is just he is not something that society can handle. And so, yeah, he's going to have another guy stab him with a sewing needle and and break out.
2: I love that he had an anatomy book, and he's like, "All right, you stab me right here, (laughs) right here. You stab me in the liver, you cunt." I'm like, "All right, see, this is slapstick. It's not like the last one that had an air of seriousness because they're all doing heroin and it feels dangerous and it feels like it." opium den as a movie. Here, these feel like four guys who somehow stumbled into their 40s and you're surprised they made it this far.
3: You say slapstick like that's better than a witty script. I felt that last group was much more wittier. It might not have had yeah, Three Stooges humor going on but <laughs> I chuckle throughout this one.
4: Yeah, and I think the first one, it was very scattershot. It had a lot, I mean, come on the, the poop in the sheets? I mean, there was a lot of episodic toilet humor in that movie. I think if you're responding to this humor now maybe you just, you know, don't want it to be covered in feces.
2: I didn't care for the vomit in the bag on this one either, but it, this just seems more broad comedy, whereas the last one was more wry. Mm.
4: I'll put it this way. I didn't laugh really as much at this movie, but part of that I think is by design. If I if I was feeling like this one is more of a downer, even though they're off heroin, I think that is, that's just natural given the fact that these characters have all hit middle age. When you're young, bad behavior is kind of expected and you know you can always hope to get better and mature but now that they've hit middle age there's a lot of sentiment floating in the air that there's nothing left for them i mean spud i wouldn't predict that he goes on the path that he would reinventing himself as a writer for me when someone writes a suicide note and feels like there's nothing left for them you really worry if they're even going to stay alive in the picture
3: Well, even Begbie surprised me. I didn't know he had a wife and kid. Yeah. Who he goes back to when he escapes prison. And I feel bad for his son. Like his son, he's going to go, I don't know, hotel management. Maybe that's not that great, but it's got to be better than having to run around with this guy as your father.
2: Yeah, but robbing houses might be more fun than managing hotels, but... Is this his wife? I couldn't quite put a peg on that. I got that this was his son. This is his woman, but... Yeah, the mother
3: of his son, at least.
2: And she's still into him. I mean, the one of the subplots of the movie, they keep going back to Begbie, even though he doesn't interact with the other characters much until the end. So since we keep going back to him, they have to give him his own plots, and one of which is he can't get it up anymore. And I know eventually he'll get a hard-on from taking a lot of Viagra, but I never see him actually get with this woman.
4: If you read the book, she's definitely much more of a character. It's definitely established as his wife. He's physically abusive. I think they minimized it in the first movie because I think they wanted you to still kind of like Begbie, and you wouldn't if he was the character in the book. But he was a batterer, and she got a restraining order against him, and nothing in porno plays out like it does here with him kind of trying to convince his son that he can be a, a burglar and steal flat-screen TVs and bring them back to Mickey Forrester, another Irving Welsh cameo.
3: They got a big old roll of cash for that flat-screen TV. They don't go for that much. You're not going to make a living off of stealing TVs.
2: A, that flat-screen TV didn't exist in 2007. B, maybe it was plasma.
3: Okay. (laughs) I just know from selling flat-screen TVs, not stolen ones, on Craigslist, they don't go for much.
2: No, but maybe they got some jewelry. I mean, they did a full-on heist here that gets interrupted. Everything involving Begbie is completely disinteresting to me up until the final act, when he finally interacts with the others. Until then, it's like... Meanwhile, over at Bigby's...
3: Yeah, I feel like I know what's going to happen with Bigby. At some point, he's going to find out that Mark's in town, and he's going to go after him. But yeah, they have to keep reminding us that this character is out
4: and about. And in the book, I think it was more interesting because Sick Boy was trying to make that meeting happen. He was plotting against Renton. He says, even in this movie, I want to draw him back in, and then I want to make him hurt as bad as I can. But I don't actually see any evidence of that. When he finally founds out that Begbie has escaped and they're in the basement, I didn't get the real sense that they're plotting together to get Renton the way that I did in the book.
2: No, in fact, it's the exact opposite because when Begbie does show up at the pub, Sick Boy is lying to him saying, well, we now know where Renton is. He's in Amsterdam. I'll find a way to get us there. Something changes between when Sick Boy gives that super villain speech i will draw him in and then i will hurt him terribly i think they really do connect i love when veronica gives them that speech she starts speaking romanian and she's like why don't you two just strip off and fuck each other you're obviously more in love with each other than you are with me i think that what we're supposed to understand is sick boy eventually was going to let bygones be bygones and defend his longtime best friend from Begby.
3: See, I never thought that. I mean, they keep using this line. First, there is an opportunity. Then there is a betrayal. We hear Sick Boy saying how he's going to betray Mark eventually. I kept waiting for that to be a plot point. But in the meantime, we see them palling around. Like, there's this pretty funny scene where they go into this pub to steal everyone's ATM cards.
4: Yeah, it's the one that feels the most culturally relevant. Like, this wouldn't happen anywhere else in the world. We have this whole group of Protestants who are still living a 1690 fantasy and That's even their PIN number?
3: All their PIN IDs are 1690. I thought that was funny.
2: This was my laugh out loud moment is first of all, the no more Catholics left song that he just improvises. He just like stops to see the audience reaction that they're pulling off their shirts and cheering. And we get this whole thing about the battle
3: of the boy and what it is. I didn't know if these were Catholics or Protestants in this bar. I don't know if they said a line about that, but you get that big pause. Like, did he choose the right side to praise?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I didn't know that either. I do love that all of the pins were sixteen ninety. It makes me think you could do this at a Star Wars convention, and you'd be pretty set if your pin was 1138
4: This <laughs> feels like a bit of miscalculation, though. I mean, I didn't mind them ripping off CD stores to pay for their drug habit, because what's the harm? It's a corporate chain, and I don't know. It just didn't seem to be hurting individuals. But this is a group of old people that probably need those wallets, probably need every dime that they have. They're identified as people abandoned by the political class. To see these middle-aged guys ripping them off to create a brothel is distasteful.
2: I don't know. First of all, they're probably all going to be reimbursed because of bank fraud things. You know, If your credit card gets stolen and people buy airline tickets on your card, you're not liable. The bank takes the loss. It's part of the fees that you're paying for using their service. But second of all these were prejudiced people. The way that they keep going on about how they were prejudiced before they walk into the club makes me think this is this movie's version of like killing the Westboro church people in Kingsman 1.
3: (laughs) I don't know it's that. Well, I was wondering about the politics. Are these people that would be like pro-Brexit? Danny Boyle is anti-Brexit? I don't know all the politics of the UK and all that, but I figure there might be some kind of political spin here.
4: No, no, the the Church of England is very Protestant. Everyone there is Protestant. It's the Irish that are Catholic.
2: But obviously these people hated Catholics, were anti-Catholic, and it's not like in Kingsman where you kill them all. You just are taking what? 500 pounds per person because there's a 250 pound per day limit. Yeah, whatever the daily limit is.
3: Yeah, I love that they wait to midnight and do it all again. (laughs) I don't see this as like physical violence. These are, sick boy, I never see as a good person and Mark is easily persuaded back into a life of crime so I don't see this as like a huge betrayal of who they are.
4: I guess I would just say that I felt like watching their bad behavior in the first movie felt explainable because they were young and on drugs. Here, they're more or less not on drugs and in some ways financially afloat i mean simon has a bar yeah it's not doing well but he has an income he has a occupation
2: he has a cocaine habit that takes every single penny the moment he gets it and they're trying to finance a whorehouse
3: it's not like they're trying to like put this money back into the pub to make it nicer
4: that's what i'm saying i just i don't think that this is cute It kind of turns me against these characters. If we're to see the first movie as a guy that wants to get away from his friends, and this is a movie about a guy who's going to patch it out with his friends, this is not the kind of activity that's going to make me want to see them come together.
3: The only thing that I really like about this whorehouse idea is Spud, because I feel like Spud comes out the best in this second film here. And the fact that he has a construction background, Marcus told him to get addicted to something else, he's trying to take up boxing, we see Spud leading the construction, and And doing, I I feel good about Spud. Like, you are right, Stuart. I don't want to see these, well, at least Mark regress, which we're seeing there. But I'm glad we're seeing Spud get a chance and grow and fix his life again.
2: I'd have to watch the film again. Maybe one of you guys caught it. But my suspicion was when we see Spud, he starts doing the construction himself, but then he's leading a crew in there. And I'm wondering if they're the same people who we'd see when we have the flashback of him being fired for showing up an hour late. Like the people who once looked down upon him. Now he's the one who's hiring them for the job and making them work. And yeah, it is good to see Spud, who was at the lowest point. He's missing some teeth. When he gets the heroin at the very beginning, he's putting it in his lip. I thought he was getting false teeth to put in his lip. That's apparently
4: uh, taken from Russell Brand's autobiography. That he'd have to buy drugs and put it in his teeth. That was a requirement.
3: Oh. How you smuggle it out. Yeah. You see him reach into the guy's mouth and take him out of that guy's teeth and then have to put him in his own. It's pretty gross.
2: Yeah. So that he's doing, that is good. Also, I thought it was a little odd. We see in this montage scene that Spud is doing a lot of writing. And I'm trying to figure out what he's writing. I'm assuming it's something to his ex-wife, because his suicide note was to his ex-wife, calling her the most beautiful thing ever. And he goes and sees her and gets pictures from her. Yeah. Later on, he's talking to Veronica, and Veronica's like, oh, you should write down your stories. I would love to read them. I think that scene should have been before this massive writing spurt because I think that that's what sets him to writing. The fact that he's writing beforehand just confused the hell out of me.
4: Yeah. In the book, he was writing a history of their neighborhood and it was all kind of a punchline leading up to the fact that the publisher rejects it because this man, no surprise, is not, you know, educated wordsmith, and he turns in a lot of grammatically bad gibberish. And here, the idea that he's going to be essentially author Irving Welsh is probably a happier compromise. It's nicer to know that he's going to get a happy ending. We like that from a character we see in the beginning trying to commit suicide.
2: It's clever, but we've seen this so many times before, right? I I can't come up with the situations off the top of my head, but at the end, where the people are creating the play or creating the movie or creating the book based off of the events you just saw. So it's not original, but I want to see the best for Spud. He is like a kicked puppy among this group. He's the one who's never done anything wrong. We want to see him have a happy ending. We want to see him, especially at this point, get clean. It's Not cute to be a heroin user in your 40s. It might be slightly cute to be a heroin user in your 20s.
3: And we're finally going to get a heroin scene. They go to pay tribute to Tommy, and they take that train and go to that same, what, meadow that Tommy took them to, wanted to go on a hike. And man, it's real cold when... Sick boy goes to Mark and says, you know, do you think about what you did to Tommy? And then (laughs) Mark just turns to him. What about baby Don? Oof. But that leads him to heroin again.
2: Yeah, that scene was harsh. And I can't believe these two ended up becoming friends. I thought this was going to be the start of a rift. Then when they start doing heroin, I'm like, well, I know what the second half of this movie is going to be. It's going to be like them going down this dissension and will spud get involved. No, they never do heroin again that we see in this movie. It's awfully convenient that a couple of ex addicts, can do it once and then just be like, all right, that's enough. Yeah. Again, it just ends up feeling like muscle memory or, uh, you know, <laughs> just a, a callback. They used the, I couldn't tell if it was reused footage or restaged, but the same exact shots of the heroin in the spoon of the heroin in the needle. It kind of reminded me of, you know, Requiem for a dream when they were shooting up and you'd see all the shots and you see the pupil dilate here, seeing all of this shoot up montage again, exactly the same. Yeah,
3: they reuse a lot of footage or they reuse actors that look like these characters 20 years ago to stage some stuff. There are shots from backs, so I'm guessing that's new footage they reshot. But they'll, you know, superimpose the young characters over these new settings. But during this whole scene when they go to pay tribute to Tommy. I mean, they throw out the line, here. here here's the debate of the film. Is this a memorial or is this nostalgia?
4: Yeah, and I feel like I respect and need for them to reference what they've done in the past because this is about atonement and maturity and without self-reflection you can't really achieve those things. But I also feel like the movie really starts drowning in this in the second half. That there are just way too many, aren't we cute, we're referencing what we did before. The soundtrack, Blue Reed is done as a lullaby, and bl- another Blondie song, and let's just get Diane in here, Kelly McDonald back for a throwaway, so she can tell Mark Ritten that he's dating a woman too young for him. Ha ha ha! Remember when she was an underage schoolgirl?
3: You you even get a yeah a new choose life monologue from
2: mark but i like that I oh was, i was about to agree with stewart that <laughs> choose
4: life is the worst moment in this movie
2: i actually really like it because it shows him bitter about the situation i think that that choose life speech is the best encapsulation of a midlife crisis i've seen in a film it's lazy
4: twitter facebook i mean oh it's bad
2: yeah
3: It seems like get off my lawn, old man type stuff when you start complaining about Twitter and Facebook. I mean, come on, everyone can complain about that.
4: For me, starting with the Choose Life moment, I feel like this movie's on a real wrong track. I was with it for the first half, but I want a whole lot more things to be happening. I want stakes to be raising. The fact that Mark
2: is sleeping with... Veronica doesn't really seem to amount to too much. There's never a showdown between Mark and Sick Boy that was promised in the beginning. And that, to me, is a pisser in that they're throwing these ugly things in each other's faces at Tommy's field. And one is sleeping with the other's quote-unquote girlfriend behind their back. The showdown at the end needed to be between them, not have them completely align forces against this third party that's been out of the movie by and large for the majority of it.
3: Well, the way Begbie finds out that Mark's in it's total happenstance. He goes into a bathroom, you know, again, we get the nostalgia. Mark goes into the bathroom and he looks at a really dirty toilet. Ha ha, remember that? He's going to go to the clean one now. But Begbie gets in the stall next to him and drops his Viagra and they recognize each other's voice. And I kind of like that, you know, you get that superimposed split screen because of the bathroom stall and they're both slowly climbing up to see who's in the other one. I like that moment, but But really, this is how Begbie finds out Mark's back in town. It's a total accident.
2: And Begbie is like popping Viagra like Skittles. I don't know if they have an additive effect. I would assume they do. And all I can think of is in the ad, if you have an erection lasting more than four hours, see a doctor. I'm like, if you've taken that many Viagra, I thought they were foreshadowing it because when he drops the Viagra, just being cheeky, Renton says... Don't take more than the prescribed dose. Listen, the last movie got bleak. I didn't know if Begbie was going to lose his cock to gangrene from overdosing (laughs) on Viagra or if it was going to be a gag. But you know what they have to do in those cases is aspirate. They have to shove a needle in your erect cock in order to get it soft. So I didn't know where this was going. It was going nowhere. He gets an erection, but nothing happened. Well, here's
4: a little factoid about Viagra. You can take a whole lot of it and never get an erection. You still have to be stimulated. It's required that something has to arouse you in order for it to work. So one pill or 20, you may or may not get an erection. What's interesting about this chase scene is at the end of it, Begbie realizes that the only thing that arouses him is violence. It's not men, it's not women, it's not men that dress as women, it's cutting people.
3: Which, yeah, we kind of got that from the last film. It's not a big revelation here, it just feels like a dumb boner joke when it happens.
4: And again, all of the drowning of the callbacks, the fact that, you know, they've got to throw Renton off the top of a hood and have him do that freeze frame laugh again. He does that same look, yeah! That was where I really started getting angry. I'm like, at a certain point, you owe us new ideas. Everything, every scene can't be a callback it starts to look chromatically sealed and desperate
3: in the I guess the new stuff that's here or the way they're resolving conflicts this is where after this chase sick boy and Renton get picked up by Mr. Doyle I don't know if they're just sitting on the side of the curb and Doyle found them or if they were there to meet him but yeah they get taken out to the woods stripped down naked and have to walk home naked and promise not to open a sauna I'm like that's the end of that plot okay
4: and yet they get a loan for a hundred thousand pounds So I think they are going to open it anyway. I don't
2: know if they're going to open it. I honestly thought that they might go through with what they were proposing. Because when they went for the small business loan, they're talking about making a bed and breakfast. I'm like, well, if you can't open the brothel and you have a 100,000 pounds... What the hell? Take the 100,000 pounds, open a bed and breakfast. What have you got to lose?
4: And this movie was instantly dated. They knew at the time, the day they filmed this was the vote on Brexit. And there is no more EU to get a loan for them. (laughs) They're like, do
2: we still go through with it? And they're like,
4: yeah, let's just do it. But indeed, this loan would not be available for these characters.
2: But the fact that that 100,000 is going to be stolen by Veronica with spuds help with
3: some really bad exposition about how spud is actually an expert forger
2: yeah and some needless like effects this is not Boyle, hearkening back to the last one when he's like signing and it leaves a trail in the air that's disney fantasia shit that's not train spotting
4: (laughs) Yeah, you know, they wanted to have a betrayal. Like, if the last movie was about Ritten walking out on his friends, isn't it funny that the woman that everyone's fighting over leaves all of them and goes back to her home? She's inspired by the writing of Spud. She's the one that really encourages him to keep going, and I don't think he would have finished the manuscript if she wasn't whispering in his ears that this was good and he needs to to do more. Conceptually, I think this is the right idea. Make Ritten and Sick Boy heartbroken Have her get away and be the scoundrel that's going to choose a different life.
2: I like that if Spud hadn't been involved. The fact that Spud, the puppy who does nothing wrong, helps her and she leaves. You know what I actually saw happening is the two guys, Renton and Sick Boy, fighting over Veronica. I thought it would be just... Tremendous. I know Spud has been writing letters to his ex wife and everything, but I thought maybe he and Veronica would go off together and he'd get off the drugs. He'd get the gorgeous girl. He'd get the hundred thousand pounds while these two were so busy plotting against each other. But he's going to help her, and I guess she's going to send half the money to his ex wife for his kid and things. But that he takes part in this betrayal, he's no longer the innocent. He has been the innocent for one and three quarter movies.
3: But I feel like he has more pure intentions. Like his part of the money is going to his ex-wife and his kid. And I I do like, you do get a moment even with Begbie reconciling with his son. You, You we find out that Begbie had run into his father. I wondered if this was in that first train spotting book and it just didn't make it into the movie, but he ran into some drunkard and he realized it was his dad. So he reconciles with his son and says, sure, go into hotel management after rejecting him. So I, again, if, if this is about middle aged men who have families, uh, we do get those moments of
4: reconciliation. Yeah, that was my favorite scene in Train Spotting, the, the book. And yeah, they were right to go. I was disappointed it wasn't in the first film. It's such a great scene. So you know what it does? it humanizes Begbie, which they did not want to do in the last movie. It's not enough
3: in this film, but it's a nice moment.
4: I question what they do with Begbie, because honestly, I feel like this climax is miscalculated.
2: Yeah, and if they're trying to humanize him, then why turn him into this maniacal, murderous villain at the end? But that said, I said that I could forgive, after 20 years, the theft of $4,000. But you take a hundred thousand and I'm going to have a blood oath against you for the rest <laughs> of my days. So I don't see how Spud, if he's ever found out by either Renton or Sick Boy, Spud's nuts are going to be hanging from a tree.
3: I think Renton would forgive him, but not, yeah, not Sick Boy.
2: And I, again, I thought this was a terrible
4: enterprise. So they don't get to open their brothel. Well, that was a horrible scam. Yeah. I mean, these people are scam artists that deserve to be punished,
2: but they didn't win the lotto. They're now on the hook to pay back a hundred thousand dollars that was stolen from them.
4: Was it a loan or was it like a grant where it's just giving
3: you the money? It is a loan. Okay.
2: So that's made it different. If it was 100000 in free cash, if it was a grant, I wouldn't feel as betrayed by Spud as I seem here. Because I'm just sitting there like, how the hell are they ever going to pay this back? Do they have bankruptcy in Scotland? I don't know.
4: I don't know how it'll work, but they are going to work together in this climax. The point is that they're going to be friends by... Finally agreeing that Begbie is a negative influence that actually probably was the thing that prevented them from being better friends back in the day. It's an easy out to make him the villain, and again, I think the better villain might have been Doyle, the rival brothel owner. But it's some kind of climax. At least things are happening. Yeah, I guess
3: it feels like a slasher movie almost. Like you get Retton hanging by some wires in that sauna that they're building, you know, choking, and with Begbie like pulling him down to choke him harder, and then. What, Spud saves the day with a toilet seat?
2: That is some fucking happenstance, that he falls and that wire just happens to wrap around his neck and hold him there.
3: Why didn't Begbie have his shotgun loaded? Like, he has to go and load his shotgun to kill him. Like, that's bad planning on Begbie's part.
2: And when Begbie is grabbing Renton, at first I thought maybe Begbie's having the change of heart. I wanted to kick your ass, but I didn't want to kill you.
3: Uh, Yeah, I thought he might be lifting him up at first to try to free him.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. And it's like he's hugging him. It's really weird. I liked the car chase scene. The one that ended with Begbie getting an erection. When Rented is hanging off the top of a car and they're going through a parking garage. I found that to be actually really exciting. This, I don't know, was it a parody of Enter the Dragon when he enters the room that's all mirrored? No, apparently, this is how
4: brothels look uh, when you go to Amsterdam or anywhere in Europe. The whole mirror. The idea is if you like looking at yourself having sex, you will be able to see it from any angle.
2: And if you don't?
4: Then maybe you don't go to this brothel. Turn the lights off. Yeah, turn the light <laughs> off. I like that. But yeah, I feel like there needed to be a visually dynamic climax. Honestly, I feel like it's lazy to make Begbie this monster that I might be complaining if it was written poorly and they had him not attack them after all this time and I certainly didn't like the way they handled it in the book where he was just hit by a car and put in a coma yeah here they
3: just lock he gets knocked out by a toilet and they just lock him up and leave him at the police station
4: it feels very tidy and again I don't necessarily feel like it's great that Renton and and Simon are best buds again
2: and especially given that Simon was certainly going to steal the hundred thousand and block Renton out of it and now they're good buddies I mean I don't know how great friends they are they're not roommates anymore. At the end of the movie, rented goes back to live with his dad. So yeah, and he goes to that
3: room. And we did get a moment earlier where I guess he tried to play "Lust for Life" by Iggy Pop and couldn't do it. it. It just sounded like a big blurt of noise when he put that needle down on the record. I wasn't sure what song was supposed to come out. Maybe it was the soundtrack for Eraserhead, the way it sounded. But no, he's able to play "Lust for Life." He does that same pose. They got a shadow on the wall of his bedroom that where he leans way back as he's doing heroin. He's dancing. He's He's doing that same pose that I did like the effect of like the room, you know, elongating and becoming like a train tunnel. But w- what is this saying that he's back on the heroin? He's going back to that life.
4: No, I think what it's saying is
2: that returning home is the right move for him. And why though, we haven't seen that throughout this film. <laughs> I think what it's literally saying is by the end of this movie, maybe as a result of having a near-death experience, I don't know because it's not really well told, he again has the lust for life. That was a great song in the last one, but it was also the theme of the last movie, choose life, have that lust for life, Here he didn't necessarily have that. He came back to town having nothing and was really bitter with his choose speech this time. And now it's showing him having fun again, I guess?
3: I guess if you like the prodigy and remixing with the Iggy Pop, it's a different version of Less For Life. It's a terrible version.
4: And I wanted to just yes. say in general, <laughs> as someone that owned the Train Spotting soundtrack, this is a huge disappointment. I do feel like most of the music here is mediocre or bad. You know, they do bring back underworld you know born slippy is now born slowly and so when it's not calling back they're just bad songs or or songs that don't fit the mood correct the only thing i'm going to endorse i really do like young fathers a scottish band apparently from the same housing complex as author irving welsh they have two songs here one of which only god knows during the end credits when you see the housing complexes being demolished
2: and i wondered again what the time frame was because so much of the music was 80s music radio gaga frankie's relax we got to see a little bit they showed the origin of choose a life with wham
4: see that means that it was in the 80s because they're being nostalgic for all those 80s hits
3: yeah but their tech in this film is not 20 years later from the 80s
2: all right guys i get it they fudge I still think the last movie took place in the 90s, even if the book took place in the 80s. <laughs> Nothing in that movie.
4: I can st- tell you the filmmakers say it's set in the 80s. But they're wrong. Okay, that's <laughs> Be that as it may, I think you just have to get with the idea that they fudged it because in their mind, even though it's set in the 80s, it was an emblematic movie of the 90s.
2: Yes. Well, is this an emblematic movie of the teens? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend T2 Trainspotting? Jacob.
3: Dang, you had to add train spotting at the end there. Because T2, awesome movie. Not just nostalgic for it. But yeah, T2 train spotting. I guess. Uh, we gotta call it that.
2: It's <laughs> a fucking title in the credits. I look for anything else. Train spotting too. I know, I noticed
3: it. That's how the title came up. Ugh. Here's the thing: this film, it wants to say something about nostalgia and about looking back on youth. And I'm all for that. I'm at that age now, in a middle age, where. Do I get mired down and thinking about those good old days or, you know, something like American Splendor with Harvey B. where he found life after middle age and being around that age now, that's definitely the kind of story I want. So I just think he gets really mired down in that nostalgia and it thinks it's more important to retell old jokes. It falls into that trap that a lot of sequels do. We're just going to tell those same old jokes. They're not going to be as funny, but I'd like these characters, I'm interested to see what happens to them. And it's, I don't think it's a bad film. I just don't think it's a great story to tell with these characters, but I chuckled throughout it. I wasn't that bored. I'm going to give it a weak recommend.
2: Stuart. Uh,
4: I'll start with the compliments. Porno is a really bad book and they do a really good job of taking what was right about it and working it into a concept that's better. In both cases, I feel like the movie is better than the book. And yeah, I'm saying about that. With train spotting, too. I think that it is a more successful cinematic experience. But I'm also going to say that this movie, T2, is not enough. It's way too self referential without reaching any kind of meaningful conclusion. I mean, as if they said the whole point of the lives they lived was that they got a book out of it. They wrote train spotting and that justifies everything that they went through. I wanted these characters to dig deeper. I wanted their relationships and their reunions to matter. And again, it just feels like a hits parade of remember when we were cool. I wish that I could feel more for this movie. I wish that Danny Boyle's flair could carry this movie because I do feel like a lot of what that first train spotting What made it work was just the style in which it was presented. If Danny Boyle had nailed the look of this movie in a more interesting way, I probably could endorse it. But ultimately, it's a movie that advertised seeing the other movie. And so that's what I'm going to say. See Train Spotting, skip this
2: one. And there's no doubt the first film's the superior film. It was more original. It had verve. It had style. This one is just more rote. I've seen countless movies about midlife crises. I've seen very few movies about fun-loving heroin addicts, even if the fun sometimes does have to end due to AIDS or dead babies. I feel this is perhaps Boyle and perhaps his cast commenting on where they are more than commenting on where the characters are. They may be taking inspiration from these novels, but it just feels like the kind of film... Every middle-aged, beginning-to-enter-old-age filmmaker makes at least once. I just see this again and again and again. But it was nice to see these characters again. I don't think this was as focused. I think it would be a better movie if they decided not to bring back Franco. I know you gotta have the original four if it's a reunion, but then they should have found something better to do with him than keep him on the periphery and then make him a broad villain at the end. But like Jacob, I chuckled throughout this film. I did find the humor to be just more mainstream, more broad. The dulled down, not quite so edgy wit of middle age. And just because I've seen this movie time and time again, doesn't mean that there weren't bits of nostalgia here and bits of self-reflection that I couldn't connect with. I'm going to let it scrape by with a recommend, but that's given that I saw the original movie. This is a weak recommend. I don't know if you'd find the same thing if you hadn't seen the original. I also don't know if you'd find the same thing if you saw the original now in your 20s and then went immediately to the sequel. If you're cruising on iTunes for a movie or Netflix and you're in your 20s and you discover Train Spotting. If you come to this one, you may not enjoy it at all until you're also 20 years later.
4: I also think being Scottish has something to do with it. If if it's a comment on anything, it's how Scotland has changed, too. I mean, they ride that tram that wasn't even there 20 years ago, and it's shot with on digital instead of using film. There's so much about the city that feels like it's presented in a new flashier way that is Scotland on the mend. Has it kicked the habit of poverty? I think that if you've lived there, that always helps. I know that when I know a city that's in a movie and it's featured well, that carries a lot of goodwill with me, but would you want to go back in 20 years?
2: No. <laughs>
4: well, I like
2: what they do with the before films. I'd like them to go again, you know, the next 11 years here. I don't know that I'm really going to care much about train spotting in 2037.
3: Here's the thing with those sunset films. Like, yeah, that second one's an improvement on the first. This is a big step down. Nothing about the second film tells me they got ideas for coming back when these characters are 60.
2: I'd look to you, Stuart. If the books have good stuff for these characters to do, if they returned, then great. But I don't see from this film that Boyle and his cast have the strong ideas to make me want to see them return the way that when Hawk and Delpy and Linkletter get together and say, where are our characters? They have strong ideas.
4: Yeah, the bottom line is, I love that couple and I want them to figure out a way to be together against all the odds that are thrown at them every decade. These people, I actually think they might be better off apart, so it's hard to want to see a way for them to come back together 20 years or even next year. And given the middling box office, I can't imagine that there's going to be a lot of demand.
2: But this isn't a movie that Boyle and company make for money. If you find a studio that will finance it, you do it because you want to bring the band back together and you want to relive the nostalgia. I have to believe that on-set nostalgia was as strong as on-screen.
4: Yeah, and I would uh, say the reunion I'm more interested in to see is will Ewan McGregor and Danny Boyle make another different movie together? That might have more potential. They were good when they were working at their peak. And yeah, if they could push it in a new direction with new characters and a, and a concept that supports their talent.
2: That could be the thing that I'd be really excited for.
3: Or maybe they could just come back to do 28 months later.
2: That was exactly where my mind was, Jacob. If Boyle wants to revisit one of his previous properties, He needs to return to that. I understand there's like a rights issue that's really miring that thing up. So that may be why it doesn't happen. But I think if Boyle is looking for something to do that would be successful, I'd like to see him get back to the suspense he did in the 90s and a little bit less of the drama he's been doing these days.
4: Suspense? Really? I mean, Shallow Grave, a little bit. Kind of. But I, I think that the weird thing was he was marketed as another Tarantino. But I, I actually think he is more mostly a dramatist. I mean, honestly, this movie has a lot more to do with Slumdog Millionaire. Watching a city change over time. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't see that he's a thriller maker.
2: I guess I got confused because Sunshine... I didn't realize that was in 2007. I thought that was actually made much earlier. So I consider Sunshine 28 Days Later, to a degree, 127 Hours to be suspense. Mm, Okay. I wasn't in suspense for 127 Hours, but it was supposed to be.
4: (laughs) Mm, Okay. Well, at any rate, Danny Boyle's going to make a ton of more movies. He's very prolific. Who knows what he'll do next? Who knows if Mew and McGregor will work with him again? But we do know what we're doing next... We are going to stay in the UK. We're finally getting to a movie that's come out in America last week. But thanks to Comic-Con, we had to delay a week. We hope you didn't mind. But Dunkirk, the movie I'm most excited for this summer. Finally, we're covering it. 70
2: millimeter glory. I wish I could get excited. I usually like Nolan. We did all of his films. I was positive about most of them. I'm not really a war film person, and nothing in the trailers beyond Nolan in the credits has told me why I should go see this film, but I will. I wouldn't if it wasn't for the show, but I will and I'm hoping I like it. I don't know, it's Christopher
3: Nolan, that, that's almost enough for me to give to go see it, and I like the trailers for it.
2: Yeah, I thought the trailers were
4: pretty great actually, but I don't know, you know, he's had kind of a rough spell. I'll just go ahead and say that I recommended the last two but I haven't gone back to them, and I do hope that this is an uptick from Dark Knight Rises and Interstellar.
2: I spend more time making fun of Interstellar's climax anymore than admiring what I liked about it. Come on Murph! We gotta go watch Dunkirk Murph! I'm gonna just keep saying Murph!
4: And we're gonna be doing some Matthew McConaughey after that. We're gonna
2: be getting to Stephen King's Dark Tower. I have crammed in some of the few King books I haven't read. I have lived in the Dark Tower this summer. I actually could have gotten a Firestarter And then a couple other books and nachos done, except I had to read 6,000 pages of King.
4: (laughs) I wish I understand (laughs) what I was seeing. I can honestly say I feel like the marketing, nothing has told me what it is even about, and maybe that can be a good thing, but I feel like enthusiasm is low until I hear that critically it's good. I
3: finally saw a trailer for I Know Nothing About The Story, so I don't know, it seems like a weird sci-fi thriller to me.
2: Trailer looks good, I really like the two lead actors they've cast, even if the trailer does give it a weird last action hero kind of vibe as it's got a little kid taking Roland into our world I don't know it's but I just hope that the filmmakers haven't forgotten the face of their father so I'll just say that and go into it as somebody who went from not knowing the books to a pretty big fan of the series so that's coming up so and over on our patron feed you know If we get to a certain amount, we're getting near that milestone, we are going to be doing monthly patron releases. Right now, though, there's just a lot we want to talk about. So we've been doing it pretty much monthly anyway, but we'll be guaranteed if we can get a few more people on the patron to get us to the fully funded mark. But we're going to be looking at Atomic Blonde. Girl John Wick. Yeah, I've actually read some reviews that said Is John Wick the male Atomic Blonde, or is Atomic Blonde the female John Wick? It's already an award-winning movie for its trailer. (laughs) So, Jacob, Justin, and I are going to be re-teaming to look at Atomic Blonde. I got to be honest, there were two movies this summer I really wanted to review that weren't part of anything we could discuss. One was Baby Driver, one was Atomic Blonde. So happy we were able to fit both in, one on the main feed, one on the patron. So... You can find out all the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. And Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And I just need one more podcast. I need one more fucking podcast.
0: I chose not to choose life. I chose something else. And the reasons? There are no reasons. Who needs reasons when you've got heroin?
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Spotting Retrospective Series. We hope you've enjoyed the show. I haven't
0: felt that good since Archie Gamble scored against Holland in
1: 1978. For more movie review podcasts, visit thenowplayingpodcast.com archives. There you'll find podcast film reviews, including Blue Velvet, Memento, The Shining, the Marvel Comics movies, and more. It's a recording,
0: a keepsake so the memory need never fade.
1: Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review.
0: Goldfinger's better than Dr. No. Both of them are a lot better than Diamonds of Forever. Thunderball was a notable success. The streets are awash with drugs you can have for unhappiness and pain, and we took them
1: all. But the good
0: times couldn't last forever.
1: Now playing relies on listener support to keep operating. 10% of your salary per annum. Paid monthly on a ruling indefinite basis. For our podcast's 10th anniversary, we have released over 150 donation podcasts through our Podbean page. Available there are reviews of all the Quentin Tarantino films, including Kill Bill, Reservoir Dogs, True Romance, Jackie Brown, and Pulp Fiction. Plus, reviews of Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later and its sequel, 28 Weeks Later. With podcasts on the Alien films, Planet of the Apes, War of the Worlds, Poltergeist, and more. Find them all at Now Playing's Podbean page and in the nowplayingpodcast.com archives.
0: But let's be clear about this. There's final hits and final hits. What kind was this to be?
1: You can also join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign to help our show grow backers of ten dollars or more will receive exclusive bonus podcast reviews including hook monster trucks the warriors and coherence a link to our patron page is at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate ah, hard currency I'll do You can also follow Now Playing on Google+, Facebook, and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests, where you can win movies and soundtracks. Choose Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, and a thousand other ways to spew your bile across
0: people you've never met. Choose updating your profile. Tell the world what you had for breakfast and hope that someone somewhere cares. Choose looking up old flames, desperate to believe that you don't look as bad as they do. Choose live blogging from your first wank to your last breath. Human interaction reduced to nothing more than data.
1: Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, underrated movies we recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should.
0: All I am trying to do, Mark, is to help you understand that the name of the rose is merely a blip on an otherwise uninterrupted downward trajectory.
1: Want to take part in the discussion? Join the now playing hosts at our forums, where you and other listeners can give your thoughts on the train spotting films. The link to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com.
0: Oh, can you not know, stay a bit longer? Would be nice to see you get to spend some time together. Missed you, Mike.
1: You can also help out now playing by leaving us a five star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com.
0: I'm a bit of a perfectionist, actually. Yes, I am. See, for me, it's got to be the best, or there's nothing at all.
1: Now Playing's Train Spotting series is produced by Arnie Carvalho.
0: My pleasure and other people's pleasure.
1: Now Playing's Train Spotting Retrospective series is edited by Steven, Heath, and Arnie. Do you
0: stop looking at your fucking watch!
1: Now playing Train Spotting series credit narration by Brock. He
0: told you to say that.
2: Yes.
1: The Train Spotting films, all audio clips and music used are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the well known Train Spotting films. Now Playing is an independent movie review podcast with no affiliation with any company involved in the publishing, creating, or distribution of this film series.
0: What does that even mean? It doesn't mean anything.
1: The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. Why'd you
0: lie to me? Because I didn't want to tell you the truth
1: now playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated.
0: I think it would be better if we brought this meeting to a close and you and I get together
1: once you've had time to reflect upon the situation.
2: this and i think about when we reviewed the before trilogy of movies i really like sorry. ice yeah <laughs> I did someone know. had there. just trying <laughs> to be quiet <laughs> if you hadn't seen the original i also don't know if you'd find the same thing if you saw the original now in your 20s and then went immediately to the sequel if you're at the video store i'm sorry if you're cruising on itunes for a movie <laughs> or netflix <laughs>